Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. Well, I, I, I just think that you never know anyone, really. You know, I, I haven't, even those that you think you know, we, we, we cannot really know each other. Um, we're all, um, no matter how much efforts we make. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a fact of human nature. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 30. Gosh, we're old. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured or have authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at j-o-n at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author Anna Samo about her book, Heartland. Anna Samo is a New York playwright, essayist, and lesbian activist. Born and raised in Cuba, she immigrated to Paris in time to witness the May 1968 revolt and participate in early women's and gay and lesbian rights groups. Since moving to New York in 1973, she has written some dozen plays, collaborated with experimental artists, and co-founded literary and activist projects. She recently finished a second novel, Tannhauser's Dream, and is currently writing a new one titled Divine Light. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right, everyone, we are here at the Read, Learn, Live podcast. My name is John Monaster. I am here today with Anna Simo, author of Heartland, a lovely book which I am holding in my left hand. Got it all marked up. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here speaking with Anna today on this very cold, cold day in New York to uh, learn more about her book. So Anna, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you. Uh, so this book was really interesting and, and uh, crazy at times and, and just a really interesting character study in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I always like to start off by asking the author in their own words to kind of summarize what the, what the book is all about. Oh, okay. This is um, not a absolute summary, you know, there could be many, but um, what comes to my mind now, this is a book about um, race and sex in America and the way it collides with, with history. Um, I s imagine the three things are three meteorites that collide with each other and kind of explode and start gyrating. So every page of the book, everything that happens there, the three elements are, are you know, in, 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 in collision or in conjunction or in some kind of um, exchange. So that's what this is about, hmm. essentially. I yeah. mean, there are other issues in there, but right, but it's through that's, that. That's that what lens. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's an interesting summary because, and and we were just talking about this before, 
we started recording, but you know, some of my questions um, tend more towards plot and they didn't, some of them didn't quite talk about that higher level issue. So that's interesting that that's kind of the, the way that you see the book and then the plot is almost, uh, is it like a device to use to help get at those bigger issues? Well, not quite. I think that they're um, integrated, you know, mm -hmm. in a in a in a very tight, integrated way. Way. It's not that I set out. I had a kind of philosophical diagram, and I mm -hmm. said, "This is what I'm going to write about." Let me find a plot that fits in that. It is that. These are preoccupations that I have had, mm -hmm. and as I, I also was telling a story, you know, so it shaped those concerns or that that way of viewing things that I say this collision of the three things mm -hmm. among others shaped the way the story was told and shaped the way the the events unfolded, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it is it is a more organic thing mm. between these two things. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great lead-in. So I, I was curious about your your writing process in general. So you were saying that you didn't necessarily have a philosophy and then just find have to get a plot that fits in with that. So so what was the overall writing process? How did you decide that you wanted to write this book, and how did you kind of put the book together? Okay, I um, many years ago in, in 1989, I made a short film called How to Kill Her. It's a 20-minute short with, with actors, etc. And it was based on, a, on what I thought would be a novel. But midway through writing that, which I never finished, I decided, let me do a short movie. And I did it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I did not finish that novel. I, I, didn't th I, I was satisfied with what I had done with the short film. And I didn't pursue the novel in a way I I wasn't happy with the way that was going. So, you know, that, that stayed in a drawer. And uh, a few years ago, um, I thought, oh, it's um, too bad. I mean, I have like 200 pages of this yeah. sitting there. I was thinking of something new to do. Um, I was still writing for the theater at the time, and, and uh, I thought this was this was fiction, you know. And uh, I reread it, and I, I liked the writing. I, I liked a lot of what it was in there, but I didn't, I didn't think it was viable. Hmm. So um, it stayed in my mind. Uh, maybe four or five years ago, um, I thought, oh, it was Eureka. I, I know. I am going to think of who wrote that, hmm. the voice, you know, because I felt it was a little uh, maybe... Uh, I didn't believe it was too nice. Mm -hmm. I didn't believe that this was real, that, that, that it, was, it was honest. I thought, who could have written that? <laughs> so that was the beginning of this. I got into the head of that imaginary person who had written something that I was distant from. I didn't mm -hmm. recognize as, you know, as me. And this character came. And I thought, she wrote that. And look who this person is. And uh, this character sta started speaking to me. And essentially, that's, that's how I always work. You know, I try to get into, I don't do it 
on purpose. I don't know how I do it, you know, but but it's uh, it's getting very deep into into a world, a world mm -hmm. that's kind of like like the bottom of the sea or subterranean thing. It's really mm -hmm. really far, 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 and getting there to that point is the hardest part, and it's amazing when it happens. So you go there. You're 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 in a in a submarine that goes and goes in this dark space. And then you hit a place, and that place is populated by characters and people and events, et cetera, et cetera. This is the way I have written all my plays, you know. And in fact, it's something that I learned in working uh, for the stage, you know, because in that kind of work, you have to listen to people talking, um, dialogue, et cetera. And it's a technique that actors use to get inside their roles, and I, I learned uh, that technique as applied to writing. So it's pretty wonderful because you don't really pre-plan. So I landed in that world, uh, but my guide was the person that I imagined that had written a book that I didn't particularly like. Mm. Um, and it was maybe a device, and of course this is entirely different and quite the opposite of where the other one would have gone. You know, it has nothing to do one thing with the other. So um, I don't, I don't pre-plan the plot, the structure, etc. I go there to that place, and I see, I hear, I smell, and I spy on what's going on, and I record. Mm. And that happens um, when things are going well. This can happen quickly in a couple of months. If it's not going well, I just sometimes I just sit. I just sit there for several hours, not pushing anything. So that is the first step, to get the first draft. This is the way I get a first draft. Once I have it there, then what comes after is the work of a writer to shape this. And that, you know, I do a million rewrites of that. And at that point, I am outside of that, and I'm looking at the structure, I'm looking at things. But the, but the primary matter it's not a primary matter that I had beforehand, pre-Josh, this is going to be that and that with my two by four little cards or whatever the equivalent. Um, I think that's, that's a fine work, way to work and a lot of writers work that way and it's great for them. But I prefer the other way because it surprises me. Mm. It takes me to places that I didn't know and I have to, I have to pay attention not only to what it said, but who says it, and the and the, and, and, and the way, the visual, the smells, the sounds, and uh, and I in that f the the this initial stage, uh, I am very passive. I just sit there. Well, one of the questions um, that that makes me think about is surprises. You mentioned that that sometimes you're surprised by what comes out of there, and something I wanted to ask you was. To tell me about a time when you were surprised. So, you know, do you have any memories of a particular moment where you wrote something and then said, wait a minute, like, you know, where did that come from or what was that all about? Well, I have to say that every day when I'm lucky enough to be able to, to get to this place, um, I'm surprised by what I see there. And I try not to disturb them. <laughs> Um, but I have been very surprised after the fact, after I have finished many, many rewrites, or even after the book was printed, 
that someone, my editor, someone says, oh, but on page such and such, you know, you wrote this and that. And I say, really? Did I? <laughs> you know? And I go there and I say, oh, oh my God, you know, geez, you know, yeah. I did. Yes, I did. It's happened many times. Um, so one of the things that also that I found very interesting about the book was the the narrator or the hero or the protagonist and and, and I kind of mentioned that uh, in the questions that that I uh, you know I, I wasn't even sure what to call her right it's she's sort mm. of nameless and she's our guide and she talks to us and it's just a very interesting uh, person to help us see into this world and and to see the world through uh, why did you decide not to name her? You know, I, I know, I'm sure that was a very conscious choice, you know, I, and that made me think about names and how names are important. And so I just wanted to hear about, about what you think about names and why you, all the other characters were named, but not, not her. Okay. So, um, she did not tell me her name hmm. and I didn't ask her, but it's true that I'm responsible, and, and when I was doing rewrites, when I took control of the actual shaping of the book, I could have stuck any name that I wanted on her. I didn't feel it was that the book wanted that. Yeah, I, I see the book as a living thing. Mm -hmm. The text is living. Um, each reader will see something different, and each time someone reads, this is being recreated by the person. I think that perhaps uh, um, um, I, I know some of the fr my friends, when I start talking about the book, wants this or does that, they think, they go like that, ooh, <laughs> like she's, yeah. but, uh, it's, but that's the way you work, uh, right? I mean, you let, uh, you let the, the I, I, store, yeah. you let the world dictate to you yes. what's but happening. I also think that even a book that's already printed there um, is, is recreated by each reader and each generation, you know, if you're lucky that it will be read later. So that the author, you know, I don't own it. And uh, what I say is not, uh, not the absolute truth. But going back to the person, um, I think that now thinking back to us, answer the question, she is a real person, mm -hmm. but she's also an archetype. Mm. And I think as such, both, it seems to me. So right now I'm stepping out of my role as a writer, stepping out of my respect for each reader, I'm, I'm being a little bit more like a critic of my own work, which, by the way, is something I don't enjoy. You know, I, I don't like to be in that position or, or of being that of any work because of my belief that every reader will read something different. But it seems to me that that's what it is. So when I say archetype, I don't mean that then she's a cardboard figure that doesn't exist, but it is um, uh, um, because the book is not a realistic novel. So I think that might be mm. um, a possibility, and maybe readers will find other possibilities, or you may find other possibilities. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, talking about the world itself, I mean, even the setting, the world, is, is clearly not ours. Or, or you, you know, it's, I think the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the, the official marketing. It says, uh, alternate pre-apocalyptic United States. And, you know, so, so we learned certain articles of the Constitution were suspended and they're kind of marauding gangs running around and things are just different. And 
I found that very interesting because you could have told a similar story in our world, but you chose to change the world a bit as well, which of course, maybe that was what spoke to you and that ended up changing everything else because of that. I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the, the differences between the two worlds and why the story is told best within this alternate reality. Well, I don't think that the story I wanted to tell could have been told in any different um, uh, type of reality. I don't think so. Any uh, One can write a story about jealousy or murder or revenge, um, in any setting, you know, so, mm -hmm. but I think that what I wanted to, 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 to write about, which is what I said, this, this, this co collision constant between history, sex, and, and race in America would be better told, you know, and I don't see this as a world that's totally different from ours. It's mm -hmm. just a hyper reality. And this was, book, of course, was, um, I was doing rewrites, you know, up until, I don't know, three months ago or four. Yeah. But essentially, it was a book that was uh, finished before um, the the last election. Uh, mm. So I was seeing this already, um, uh, and it was imagined. I, I started writing this book, you know, for five years ago. So, you know, it's, it's nothing long before uh, the, the current uh, reality that we're living. But I, I don't, I don't think... Um, you can separate hmm. this hyper reality from the way this from the story that's been told. I don't think that story that I wanted to tell could be could be told um, any other way. Yeah. And so, t uh, <laughs> talking about the book itself, I you know I, one of the the very first thing I, I I noticed and marked you know the very first page, uh, you know we hear our heroes say then. As now, I thought that ignorance about a subject is a rhetorician's ideal state and inoculation against false certainties. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I, I think, to me, the narrator was just generally confused and out of it and, and unsure about how to navigate her world in many different parts of the book, both kind of before her injuries and then after in a different way. And, you know, there's old McCabe and there's new McCabe and there's a metamorphosis and then she doesn't know where McCabe is, for, which is this, this you know, person she's trying to get revenge uh, or, or she's, she's after. It really feels like that she's confused a lot and uncertain a lot and ignorant a lot about what's going on. And do you feel like that is connected to this statement at all? Or, you know, how is that, how is all of that affecting her reality? Um, I, I don't think the statement is connected to her perception. I think that if you and I were plunged into that situation, well, I, I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I would, uh, what's happening there is, um, it's hard to explain. What's happening there is mysterious and, you know, not not according to known laws of you know human behavior or physics or biology. Sure. So I don't think she's particularly um, not perceptive. I think that she's presented with a state of affairs that any most people would find um, 
bizarre will find uh, difficult to yes. interpret. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> yeah. I think that I think that um, she's surrounded by 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 uncertainty. Hmm. Uh, in that sense, you're right. It does have something to do with her with her earlier views. You know, she's surrounded by uncertainty, and and she tries to navigate through uncertainty, mostly by not pushing and asking for. Now and then, she does ask questions, and most of the times, they remain unanswered. Yeah, I mean, it's her and McCabe are kind of the two primary people that are interacting throughout the book, and. There's an old McCabe and a new McCabe who goes through a metamorphosis, but yeah, throughout she's she seems very fearful of asking questions to McCabe, and and generally is fearful of starting conversations even at times. And so that's interesting, yeah, like to think about, you know, what would we do in that kind of situation? Like, how would we try and figure out what was going on when, you know, like. McCabe just disappears at one point for a bit and we don't know what happens. And yeah, I can see how that would be very, that'd be very difficult for anyone to really understand. Um, Yeah, of course, you know, you could have a a protagonist who's more, um, more of a believer of, of reason and more of uh, impatient and trying to find out. But I think that she is ambivalent and she's kind of, waiting to see how things unfold and kind of swept into this very peculiar, you know, mm-hmm. um, events, you know. But I, uh, there, there's another thing that I, that I had in mind, and, and there's a, a, a riff in the book somewhere about, um, about um, chance and necessity. Um, and I think that's that's also one of the the motifs of this book. You know, maybe not one of the three main. You know, what is it? Um, the relationship between each event. I I I I think that I was thinking of the the idea that not just evolution but everything is a is an interplay between chance and necessity. Um, it's also a philosophical discussion. You know, that that has been going on for forever. Um, and I think that when do things happen? There's another, the, b- because it's chance, and when do things happen? Because they had to happen. Um, so at every step of the unfolding of this, there is an interplay of any bifurcation that you see in this story. Uh, and this, I'm telling you, uh, as a reader, I noticed that it was there, and I did, Notice that the, when she started the protagonist riffing about chance and necessity, that she realized that what had been going on was this interplay between chance and necessity. She talks about, you know, a, um, uh, I think she mentions at some point, I think around that, that, that page, um, we can go back later if I look at exactly yeah. what, she, what it says. So I, I, I don't, I don't see. To me, it's not strange that she doesn't become like a detective trying to find out and get to the bottom of it. She makes efforts here and there, but not, but not great. I, to me, it seems like um, not an unusual thing. Yeah. Well. well yeah. So so right at the beginning, I, I mean, we find out that. You know that she hates McCabe, 
she uses that word very clearly and she talks about this kind of kind of this love triangle where there was uh, BB and BB chose McCabe and she kind of just says it very clearly McCabe needs to die like that is that's just like uh, a motivation that we see in black and white immediately and you know I, I thought that was very interesting because later on in the book she mentions that she realizes she didn't really know the old McCabe that well and mm-hmm. you know during the course of the book maybe old McCabe was a bit difficult to get along with, but then there's sort of this new McCabe that went through the metamorphosis and is being very kind and, you know, taking care of our narrator after she gets, you know, into a, a really bad, I guess, frostbite accident thing where, you know, she's in bandages and needs help and, you know, but, but the hero, our hero just can't, it can't really, doesn't seem affected by that in the sense that she still is, she still hates McCabe. She still has that goal of killing her. She still at least tries several times and at the end, you know, try, tries really hard to make that happen. And it, I was just, you know, I thought that was so interesting to me because I thought maybe it spoke to something at a higher level about how we're very quick to jump to conclusions or to stereotype people. And then it's very slow or difficult for us to change those. And I was just curious if you thought that was the case and and what we can do about that. Um, I, I think that what happens there is that um, the, it, it's, a, uh, it's a transition between love and hate. There's a very, very fine line. Hmm. And, and uh, at the end, this, this um, saintly figure, in a way that McKay becomes, there is some kind of love for her from the person who wanted to kill her. Um, I think throughout the book, I was, um, uh, the book also, you know, tries to address the issue of, you know, where does love end and hate begins and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, she does not hate, she, she, yes, there is a, there is a a hatred that's running through Tor McKay, but at some point, um, it is impossible to hate McKay the same way. And there's something that resembles like love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she mentions at one point that she couldn't live without her. Or exactly. Something like that. Yeah. And um, and there's a, a couple of things where she kisses her hands, etc. So it may not be sexual love, but it's a more you know exalted type of love. And mm-hmm. and their whole relationship uh, surrounded music and food, etc. It's uh, at a at a different non. Um, a level that doesn't include carnality, but it's something, you know, and, and, yeah. and it's the progression of that is something that, if you think about something that surprised me, as I started seeing this thing happen, that did surprise me, hmm. that it went in that, because when I started listening to these people and writing what they were telling me, I assume it was that hatred simple, just hate this person that I'm going to kill, would continue like that to the end. And then suddenly I saw that this was changing into something much more ambiguous mm. and, and going into something that was more, um, I wouldn't say religious or spiritual, but at the plane of you know something else. And yeah. that was surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, I went with the flow of the book, but that was something that 
was totally unexpected for me. Yeah, and and for me too as a reader, uh, that was that was very unexpected. I mean, uh, I I also felt I was reminded of of kind of Moby Dick because there were just so many instances where it really seemed like she just could not stop thinking about McCabe, and you know there are there are many de- detailed descriptions of sort of all the different ways she could kill McCabe, you know, and, and all the different horrible things she could do, or you know when. Uh, like when McCabe goes missing, for instance, she almost goes berserk. I, I feel like she just cannot deal with the fact that McCabe isn't there, and she's thinking about it every second of every minute. She's you know rearranging flowers constantly, having food ready, trying to hoping that you know she's trying to lure McCabe back. And I feel like it, it, you know some of that, and, and we talked a little bit about this, but she she almost loses touch with reality at times. I feel like because of these strange things that are happening to her. And then she's also got this obsession layered on top of that. And you meant, you know, we find out kind of in little snippets that maybe she's not even entirely human right now. I guess I I was trying to tie all those thoughts together somehow and and maybe you could help. I mean, how, how does that sort of obsession develop and how does that link with some of the other stuff we've been talking about in terms of kind of her humanity and her her feelings towards McCabe? Well, I, I think it's really um, very interesting that you thought about Moby Dick. I hadn't thought about it, but it is true. But you know that the story of the great white whale is a, is a love-hate story. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, thanks for discovering that. I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. Um, that that's 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 a story that in some ways is similar to this this love hate thing that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did I guess I didn't quite understand the other point that you were trying to get at. If you could repeat it. Yeah, I mean, I I think what I was trying to get at was, you know, trying to bring together this obsession with the fact that she she's obsessed with McKay, but also is dealing with sort of a lot of strange things happening where people are disappearing and, you know, things are, locks are getting broken into and she doesn't know how. And so she's, she's obsessed and super focused on something. Strange things are happening as well. And she can't quite explain them. And then we get these little hints throughout the book that she's maybe no longer human. And so I was just trying to, find a way like see if there's a connection between all of those those three things and so that that's what i was curious to to know about you know am i are, are those actually not connected at all or do you think the the kind of narrator in her you know she's sort of a bit removed from her humanity she's dealing with strange things happening and she's got this obsession do you think it's sort of are, are they all tied together somehow, I guess, is what I'm getting at? Or are they just distinctive things that happen to be happening to her simultaneously? Well, I, I think that uh, I mentioned the word hyperreality a while back. Yeah. I think that she's not imagining things or reacting to things because she's uh, sick or changing into a, a different um, entity. The, I'm, I'm talking about the narrator. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, it is a hyperreality, and it's a world in which, which is the only kind of book that I like reading and I guess writing is where things are not what they seem to be. Yeah. So this is that kind of world. So 
um, it's not the projection of her, um, you know, lack of uh, intellect or her emotional state or that she imagines anything. I think you and I there will, you know, see things on the same, we might not act the same as she did, but it certainly is a world that exists. Yeah, well, um, I, I think well, what I was getting at, though, is that, so even if, even if it's a world that exists, it's still bothers and unsettles her to see these things happening. So even if it's a world where, you know, it's normal for people to somehow escape out of a house even though they don't have a car or somehow get through a lock to a wine cellar even if they don't have the key, even if that's normal in this world, it seems to bother her. It was my takeaway. Like she seemed, some of her obsession then seemed to focus on that. Like, wait, how... What's going on in here? How are they getting the wine out every day if I have the only key to the wine cellar? Or how is McCabe, you know, leaving the, the house if she doesn't have a car? Or, you know, what's going on here? So I guess that that's what I was trying to understand is even if the events that are happening are normal for this world, it seems like her obsession with McCabe also is spilling over to where she is a bit obsessed about these events happening that she also... Um, She's also having trouble explaining, I guess. That could be. I, I really can't tell you. One yeah. thing that I know for sure is that um, when I look at the world in which we live, we, we are certain, I'm certain that you're sitting there, and I'm certain that this is a table, etc., because I have been trained from birth to imagine that things are what they seem to be. Um, and we call that sanity. But in reality, I'm a big believer that they aren't. Mm. For example, we're, 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 we're molecules and we are also um, electrical, you know. Impulses. Impulses. Yeah. But we don't see them. Yeah. We don't see them. And I'm not trying to be subjectivist or anything. It's a fact. So luckily, we see each other as solid matter and you have you know your color and what you're wearing and i have mine and we both know because in this world we're sane mm -hmm. quote unquote that that's the way it is but at the same time every time i look out every time i look out the window and i look at the fire escape which is every morning i have a sense of Okay, this is iron it's a fire escape it has the shape but it's black and at the same time part of me says and yet, because there is a molecular, um, uh, you know, structure, because I am seeing this, because my eyes are in a certain way, and I, and I start, I as, this is me as a person, I start kind of moving up, up until I see the earth, you know, right there, very little, this happens in a moment, or I'm not crazy or anything. Yeah. There's a relativity to all of the things, and then this happens in a second, it's just a little reminder. Um, so what, what this world is, is a world in which these things are more blatant. That's why I say hyper-reality. Mm. It's not that things that are happening there are, you know, unheard of or impossible in our world, or that she is, you know, mentally ill and sees them like that. It is as simply, in this, certain layers of rationality have been stripped in that hyper-reality, and that's how um, you know, there's less, there are less layers between mm -hmm. the solid matter and the things that are orderly and f the chaotic um, under layers in which we inhabit, but we ignore that they are there. And 
one of the reasons why this book happens, going back to your initial question, in a world that I'm rewriting, the past five years of history of this country there, is because when you push things like that, you strip things of the veneer of normality, of everything from constitutional normality to the normality of solid bodies, and then all of the other events of the, of the um, book are happening without that veneer, and that's what, to me, is a hyper-reality. So that, that's, that's more or less now. I'm, I wasn't thinking about that while I was listening to this. Um, you know, really extraordinary and interesting people tell me that. But now that you ask me, I'm trying to, you know, right. give you an answer. You know, again, every person who reads this book will have their own version of this. I wanted to um, specifically ask about McCabe and, and mm -hmm. her metamorphosis and her transformation you know about a quarter of the way in the book she completely changes she was kind of this this person that was just it seems like was designed to be a, a character that we wouldn't necessarily like and she wasn't really nice and it, she just wasn't a great person and it seemed like this metamorphosis happened her body changed a lot her mind changed a lot. She became a very different person. Um, and this, of course, affected every, everything else. So I, I guess I wanted to ask about transformations and maybe to find out if you had a story about a transformation in your life, either that you went through or that someone you knew went through and kind of any thoughts you might have on, on how to deal with a transformation like that if, if we have someone that we've been close with. Well, I, I, I just think that you never know anyone, really. Mm. You know, I, I haven't. Even those that you think you know, we, we, we cannot really know each other. Um, we're all, um, no matter how much efforts we make. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a fact of human nature. So sometimes what we we see as transformation in, in I'm talking about you know our personal lives has always been there. It shows that we, we, don't, we don't know what goes through people's minds, we don't know what it is. You know, it's, a, it's not that it's impossible to know a person. I'm just saying it's impossible to absolutely know someone. It's also impossible to know oneself completely. I'm not a fan of the self-help school that says, oh, you can make all of these efforts to know yourself better. Yeah, you can make a lot of efforts and, and you can be reflect and you can be responsible, but there is always something intangible in yourself, let alone the person you have in front of you. So that's my personal experience. In terms of, in terms of um, literature, I was reading um, Ovid's Metamorphosis because when I started thinking about, when I started seeing that this was going that way, I started reading that. And then I realized that the, the you know, this subject matter is a, a constant in, in literature, or at least Western literature. And also, you know, African uh, stories and so on and so forth. And um, so it's it's not, nothing new, but uh, it's a uh, metamorphosis is something that's that is important here in this book, as you can, as you point out, and also in the novel I wrote after that, it's even more um, 
equally central, you know, it's, it's a, something that uh, is clearly preoccupies me, you know, for whatever reasons. And uh, well, and, and of course the, the changes in the, um, in the humanity of the, um, of the narrator. Hmm. There are a couple chapters that were completely different from the rest of the book. So I, I wanted to, to bring them up and, and uh, talk about them because they were really interesting and almost these sort of amazing little you know, short stories, or I don't even know what to call them exactly, but they were completely distinct from the rest of the book. They take place, I think, 1625 in Havana. And I was curious to know how you felt they were connected or how we can, if there's a way maybe we can compare what happened to Serafina with the hero and the rest of the novel. The things that happened centuries ago, that history is living, is living in them now. Uh, you can't escape it. And, uh, and I think that's important to the, the, um, this, the theme of race, which is, I think, one of the two main themes of this book, from beginning to end, is about race in America. This, the narrator and Raphael come from that background, and they are, everything they do or don't do is imprinted by the way race in America is played. And their, the history, the ancestral history of both of them, as I said, real or metaphoric, it's something that's in them. These are families, these are backgrounds who never forget. That's there, it's very present. Um, so I wanted to have that as a, as a reminder of their alienness, of their being the other, of where they come from, and how that, that's there. And it's just, it's just always there. Yeah. It is there. And um, I also thought that the fact that Don Manuel is, is a gay man and he's the one who passes on this, um, this literacy to this girl, um, to me that, 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 was, that was significant because, you know, otherwise th th there was a, the, it's an inquisition that's preventing, that's killing the Jews and preventing those books from being read. So in these two cases, um, and one is a, is, a, is a kindly priest who doesn't, doesn't save the roguish um, ancestor, um, who's in a way metaphorically close to, closer to the roguish narrator of this book, mm -hmm. you know, in his relationship with women, et cetera, et cetera. And the other one is the, the, the older man, Don Manuel, who, because he wants to um, leave a legacy, and because he is perhaps a kind person, but mostly he feels that this is the work of his life, you know, to get this person going. And those books are saved. Yeah. That knowledge is saved thanks to her and to him. Um, so it is a history that these people have, these two characters have, and it's a history that the white people around him I have no idea, you know, for them, except Raphael, who has risen to, to, the, to that world and has been accepted up to a certain point. We know what happens to him. It's ignored, I mean, 
Mm. Um, that's why one thing that the narrator has from beginning to end is a deep hatred of white people. And I have to say it here. And I think it's pretty amazing that people read the book and they don't notice it. And I wonder why. Well, I don't think it's hatred in the way toward McCabe. Obviously, it's not the same kind of thing, but there is a constant, you know, a constant sense of uh, pushing back, you know. Yeah, well, not at I all. I mean, she's not going to go out and start a riot or anything, but but it is it is a it's a kind of resentment that exists. Yeah, definitely, and I think there's almost a sort of a she goes on kind of almost a page long rant, and it's very much an us versus them kind of separation that I that I got from that where it's not only white people but she kind of rails against the entire like an entire group of people so not even what we would always necessarily think of as kind of the white elites for instance but lots of other races and, and classes as well and then she draws a group of her own that's kind of the we she uses we and says you know we we don't like them. We, you know, uh, you know, our, our group is here. And what what I found most interesting about that is that it 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 wasn't as kind of black and white as I thought. You know, it wasn't necessarily like, okay, you know, the white people I don't like, and everyone else, you know, we're all together in this. So you know, that's it. It was very like there were lots of different groups, and they. And she liked some of them, and some of them weren't liked, and it seems very complex. Well, she goes back to her hometown of Myra, where she essentially grew up in a segregated um, circumstances, you know, place. You can see what she does. It. So, you know, when you go back to her hometown, where you have um, encountered humiliations or difficulties, then you're relieving, you're relieving that and that's when she starts actually going into the into the subject matter at length um had she gone somewhere else um we probably wouldn't have heard as much of this you know um she wanted to bring her there to show her where she came from and put her in her own turf at the same time this is not uh, i don't think this was easy for her to go back to this place so a lot of the um, a lot of the um, comments about race happening in the context of how she grew up and what had happened then, etc. You know. Uh, now whether in New York she had the same um, proclivities, I think she came from there, and those things were always on the back of her mind. But obviously they weren't active, as active as when you're confronting. You know, you're you're in New York. You're in a more sophisticated place, and the people accept you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you'll think about those things, but but then you go back to the place where all of this starts, and things are then memories come out, and things take a different. Um, you know, there's a different view of things. Um, I, I don't think her, you know, obviously the fact that McCabe is white, so is um, Bibi. So I think that uh, certainly that is certainly always a factor because it's raised in America, it's always a factor. But when you see it really um, openly, where you really see it openly, is when she's talking about 
she goes back her, to her hometown and she's um, telling us how it used to be and you know pretty much you know living in a in a in that neighborhood and being confined to that place this place is not an imaginary place i have been in many places like that today in this country so let's not imagine that this doesn't exist yet that's the way things are not not here in the city but elsewhere The narrator's relationship with Mrs. Crandall is an interesting one. She's using Mrs. Crandall for information, and Mrs. Crandall is using her for pleasure at the start, but I think things start to blur between the two as time progresses. Talk about imbalances that exist during the beginning of a relationship and what they mean for the long term. Yeah, I think that the fact that little by little the narrator um, realized that both of them were outsiders to admire. Um, and, you know, Mrs. Crandall is a white woman. She's married to a man, et cetera. But she, she, you know, she clothed her way up to, you know, um, the middle class. So she's, you know, really, you know, what some people would consider, you know, uh, someone of a, of a lower class, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think there is, uh, as you say, there, they are exchanging um, information and sex and, uh, and they are outsiders, both of them. So I think that this is the basis of their, their transaction is, But they, ho they both have an intimate knowledge of Elmira, of this town, which, which more and more as the book um, moves forward becomes um, a microcosm of, of, of America. You know, they both have uh, a, 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 um, an intimate knowledge of this place and how this place works. Not that their views are... Um, each of them has the truth. You can see how Mrs. Crandall knows very little about people who are not white, and how I think the narrator, um, I, I venture to say that um, she knew very little about poor white people, and now she's seen one who, who made it. Um, so, but, but I think that uh, if, uh, at, at that point, Elmira becomes America, and it's America. The book describes explicit sex and has explicit language within it. And I think that was interesting because you don't see that as much in novels or in, in other forms of art as often. Why was it so important for our narrator to use that type of language and to describe the sex? And how, if at all, did you feel any pressure to sort of fit in with a majority of art that doesn't really contain such language or descriptions? Okay, the first, why, why did she tell us a story in such an honest and unvarnished way? I think she's getting to the moment of truth. And she's, um, the first chapter, when she tells us about her childhood, etc., and what happened before, it's very tongue-in-cheek, you know, there is, you know, very cynical, sarcastic, etc. But you can see that 
um, as soon as it moves out of there on chapter two and they go to Elmira, she becomes more and more, I think, um, sincere, more and more, you know, uh, unveiling, um, being less guarded. Um, and then it reaches a, a point where she's telling us um, this unvarnished story. I think that she's um, she's telling us more and being more honest than she used to be at the beginning of the book. So it's part of the evolution of the of this um, conversation or or this revelation. I would never censor anyone. And I also um, don't think the role of uh, a writer is to self-censor. I'm 100% against that. I would never write something that I then say, oh, I can't do this. Now, I, I am sure, because I'm not immune to the pressures of this world, that, there, that, that like everybody else, I must have self-censored. Um, I'm not aware of having done it on purpose, and I certainly am. In the current climate, which is a climate of uh, increasingly, uh, not now, it's been going on for the past 10 or 15 years, you know, uh, increasingly uh, of censorship and self-censorship is pretty blatant, you know. Um, I moved here 35 years ago when the East Village was, we were pariahs and we were marginal and everybody said and did what they wanted. That's where I come from. And I am not going to change now. This is who I am. And, you know, if someone doesn't like it, they don't have to read the book. At the end of the book, something dramatic happens, and our narrator decides not to do something that would have saved McCabe. How responsible are we for our inactions? Yeah. Um, I think that what you're trying to say is that um, she doesn't redeem herself at the end. Um, it's true. I think that um, the the inaction um, or lack of action at the end um, is pretty common. I think um, we don't really know what we would do in a situation like that. Um, Maybe I say that because I don't, I don't have um, a high regard for how um, I don't know how firm, uh, how how courageous I would be, you know, in a situation like that. Uh, I have, and I have very little um, faith in even people close to me. How courageous, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, for example, if you have to face um, the possibility of torture or death or being sent to Guantanamo or whatever. That's not what happens in the book, but I'm giving you similar things. How would we react to that, you know? Are we going to be heroes or are we going to be cowards? Yes, but also we don't really know what strength we have. We'd be surprised if some people who may not be so great in daily life suddenly at that moment are heroes who take a stand and say, you know, I'm going to to, to help, and others don't, you know. And yes, that the, the narrator here does not, does not um, do the right thing, do the um, heroic thing, doesn't do, you know, that. And I question, I wonder, would I? I don't know. I mean, I, I always, you always hope you would. Right. You always, we all have 
a good opinion of ourselves. Yeah. We always hope, but but I, I don't know. I hope so, but I don't know. Are there any lessons or anything else you hoped people would get from the book that we haven't quite covered yet? I I just want, there's something I want to say. When I started writing this book, maybe um, when it first came to mind, you know, maybe five years ago or six years ago, um, I thought that it was perfectly possible that this is the way America was going to end really soon. I saw it like that, okay? So it was not something far-fetched. In terms of um, a political situation deteriorating, you know, things in other countries in the world have changed overnight in a matter of months. We don't think it will be possible here because this is the oldest and strongest democracy in the history of humanity. But I got the feeling maybe five or six years ago that we were on a slippery slope and that yes, it could happen here. So that um, permeates, that sent me in that direction of hyperreality. Um, this is not a work of science fiction. This is not fantasy. If you want to classify it, I think it's more along the lines of a satire or along the lines of, you know, a morality tale or something else, but it's not that. Um, but, I, but, I, but I did think that, um, and, I, and the president in this book is a female president, which um, very deliberately so uh, is like that. I have, I'm, I'm a pessimistic optimist or vice versa, an optimist pessimistic. I think that human nature is, um, you know, I don't have great faith in human nature in many, many ways. I think that we're, going, we, we're, we're prone to repeating uh, mistakes both males and females, I think of the, you know, uh, or of any race, you know, not to deny the inequalities that exist, et cetera, et cetera, but I, I am not um, a person who will think, oh, we will do better. No, you know, human, humankind has its, um, its tendencies and they're repetitive. And one of the reasons why we repeat is because we really ignore the history is always with us. All right, let's wrap things up with the Thunder Round. I'm just going to ask you a couple quick questions, and then uh, we'll be all done. So to start off, what is your favorite food and or drink? I, I love pasta. I mean, I'm, I'm a big pasta. You know, of course, you know, I, I love pizza. You know, that's the thing I buy. I like pizza. And, um, and, and, and uh, I... Good stuff with uh, vegetables, but you know I'm not. But it has to be, you know. I, I don't eat meat though, not because of I, of any principles, but because I never did like it. Um, when I was a kid, I was forced to eat it, and I was really happy that, uh, you know, when when I went to college, I didn't have to eat it if I didn't want to. So, um, yeah, I did. So you know, I I don't, you know, but but I'm pretty flexible, you know. And I like simple things. I mean, a slice of New York sl slice of pizza and a bagel. I really, when I'm not here in the city and I'm elsewhere, I really, I really regret it. You know, like I want it, I can't have it. You know. Where's your favorite place you've ever been? Well, I've been in a lot of places, but in, in recent times, um, I was in um, a place where I had never been before. I don't know why. 
in the southwest of France, in the Lotte Valley. It's a very, you know, simple place, you know. But the pleasure of being in an agricultural area where you can take a car and go through a little road, dusty road with uh, vineyards on each side, and not famous vineyards, not fancy ones, but just local ones. And uh, I, I really liked it there, you know, um, where I spent a, a couple of weeks going around, um, maybe a few years ago. Um, so that was, that was, yeah, I like it. Nothing spectacular, nothing, you know, that would ever be in, 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 a, uh, in any famous, you know, newspaper. But, but uh, and then suddenly, you know, there is a little um, 14th century church that's locked up and you have to find the key with some guy who, who's, a, who's a, a farmer who lives nearby and opens the door. That, you don't find that very often in France anymore. You, you find it in other places in Italy, except that in Italy, often you don't find the person with the key. <laughs> it's harder, harder to find. Um, but you know, there's so many other places, you know. And, and I like here in New York, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a, a New York State, you know, booster, you know, I, I go upstate. Whenever I go upstate um, to visit, um, I'm really always really happy. It's a, it's a beautiful place. And finally, if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? You know, I would be afraid of doing that because anything you change changes a lot of other things. And I, I would be horrified to think that I started a chain reaction that would, would do more harm than good, so I would not wave the magic wand. Well, I might destroy it because I think, I think it's. Well, I, I, I don't. Uh, can you imagine people, you know, with uh, big egos or authoritarian tendencies or with, you know, um, using the magic wand? Unless it's a one time magic wand. If it's a one time, I would do something, you know, that wouldn't hurt anyone, like like getting a nice meal for the whole block, or you know, something little, or or having all of New Yorkers have, you know, something nice like ten bucks, you know, fifty, you know, something that wouldn't, as much as I could think, wouldn't start some catastrophic reaction somewhere, you know, yeah. ice cream for everybody, you know, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again to Anna Samo for joining me to talk about her wonderful book, Heartland. Give it a read. Go buy it. It's great. And uh, thanks so much for being here, Anna. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. <laughs>